This is from 2 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, beloved. I have written both to arouse your memory, stimulating you to action with unmixed or muddied thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, declaring in advance God's plan, the commandment of our Master and Savior through your apostles. Know this first, that mockers will have a heyday in the last days, following their own desires and acting according to their peculiar passions. They will say, where is the coming he promised? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Since they want what they desire to be true, reducing everything to the level of their feelings, they conveniently overlook this fact, that by God's word, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Then, by means of the water and word, the world that then existed was deluged and perished in a miserable end. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are put in the treasuries for fire, purification, and transformation. They are being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, those who have no respect for God, his artistry, or his rule. Thanks, Holly. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, we are almost at the end of 2 Peter's letter. We've been walking through this letter for a couple months now um, as a faith family. And so um, if you were here last week, uh, chapter 2 um, uh, ended in this very kind of um, grotesque graphic image of the cycle of life and faith that we often stumble into miserably when we follow leaders um, who use the words of Jesus, but not the way of Jesus. Um, Peter chapter two, really, it was all about that, helping us discover the obstacle to an effective and fruitful and joyous faith. The thing that he promises is ours, that he reminds us is ours in Jesus in chapter one. Um, and that obstacle is following those who lead with the words of Jesus, but not in the way of Jesus. And in this proverbial picture that Peter ends chapter two with of a dog returning to its vomit, a, a pig um, trying to cleanse itself in the mud, um, it's this picture of an ever-repeating sequence of self-submission to dining on regurgitated waste, um, a self-submitted bathing in squalor, never ridding ourselves of the filth that pollutes. That's the proverb that Peter leaves with us. But he does so, um, again, in the context of you find yourself there, you find yourself returning to the thing regurgitated, you find yourself returning to um, this, um, this way of trying to cleanse yourself that isn't really cleansing yourself, all because you've forgotten what Jesus has already done and what he's already given you. You find yourself there because you're following people who use the words of Jesus, but because they don't lead you to the way of Jesus, because you haven't discerned because you know the words of Jesus, what God, Jesus has given you, you find yourself in that cycle of ineffective, unfruitful, and miserable faith. And you find that your knowledge of Jesus is relatively ineffective in the things of daily living. You experience faith as a cycle, a vicious cycle of high expectations, a recurrent misery, a promised freedom, a repeated entanglement. All Peter says, because we have not put into action that which we've already obtained, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how he began the book. To those who have obtained a faith, Peter assumes that the people he's writing this letter to have obtained the faith in Jesus, the faith that comes to them by the righteousness of Jesus, not because they've made themselves clean, not because they've made themselves right, not because they figured it out, because Jesus has figured it out for them. He's given it to them. He's, he's divinely imparted to them this life that God has intended for them and is full for them. But at the same time, there are those amongst them that have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. Because we have forgotten, or more accurately to Peter's intent, because we will forget, Peter writes these letters. Because we're prone to wonder, because we're prone to make little of the way of Jesus, whether the cause is following fools or failing to supplement our faith, we need most regularly our memories stimulated, a clear vision 
and action and life with God and others. That's what Peter says to his beloved friends as he concludes his final letter. He says again in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Dear friends, beloved, dear friends, people I know, people I long for, people who I want the best for. This is now my second letter I've written you. I've written both to arouse your memory, stimulating you to action with unmixed or unmuddled thinking. Unmixed or unmuddled thinking. He's trying to clear up their way they see the world, the way they see God and themselves and how they relate to both. I want you to recall the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, declaring in advance God's plan, the same plan that the commandment of our master and savior, Jesus Christ, spoke of through your apostles. That's what he wants them to remember. That's what he desires for them to know. That's what he's using to stimulate their thinking so that they might know God and their place within the world with unmixed and unmuddied thinking. Peter's spiritual companions, that's Peter's spiritual companions in us require reminders so that they and us neither follow fools nor become fools ourselves is why Peter pins these final declarations. Yet there's an irony in Peter's warning. There's an irony in Peter's warning to his obstacle. The irony of following those who lead with the words of Jesus, but not the way of Jesus, is that we begin to think that God's plan in the way of Jesus is actually the problem that we begin to think that the way God goes about rescuing us, guarding and keeping evil at bay, overcoming that which is broken to restore, to save us, is actually the problem itself. Or if we won't go that far, we at least think it's a little silly or ineffective. It's not the way the world really works. It's not the way the world is really changed through the way of Jesus. That's not how the world spins and keeps moving forward. Isn't it ironic to think that many of those who are part of the Jesus community will end up feeling, at least in the way they practice their daily living, that the way of Jesus doesn't work? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, if I'm honest, I felt that way, right? There's at times where the way of Jesus, this life of Jesus that Peter wrote in the first letter, a life that seems backwards by all accounts, a life of submission and sacrifice and service as a way to full and happy and whole life, that doesn't seem to work. But isn't it right that the company of Jesus will feel that way sometimes? But they won't abandon the words of Jesus when they feel that way. But they won't follow his way in the manner which he lived. They'll still cling to the words of Jesus, but we won't actually live the life that Jesus has us live. They, we find ourselves trying to relate to God and others not so differently, physically, mentally, economically, politically, religiously, spiritually, in the culture we inhabit. We find that our way of going through life isn't all that different than the world around us. And we do this all because we've forgotten, conveniently so, as Peter would say, God's activity in the past. We've forgotten how God's worked in history to get us to this point. And in forgetting the past, we're unable to recognize God's work and working in the present. We're unable to see what God is doing right now and today, and thus are unable to live new, anew, in the trust of the, for the future. At least that's what Peter's final argument, warning, and encouragement is to his beloved family. That's what chapter 3 is about. Helping us recognize God's activity in the past. Helping us see that in seeing how God's acted in the past, we can recognize what God's doing in the present so that we might be ones who actually live in trust of the future. That's what Peter desires for us. And so today, we're, as we move closer towards Peter's benediction, let's take up his invitation to unmuddy and detangle our memories as we at least dive into a couple of these, as we at least distinguish what we tend to overlook and why, what we tend to forget, or in the ESV is translated overlook, but it's just the idea of forgetting, the idea of passing over, um, um, this, what we tend to overlook and why we tend to overlook it, and then what we miss when we do overlook it, what we miss when we, we do forget. Let's start with what we overlook and why, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 3. I have the, the translation up on, on the, the scriptures that, that I'm using. It's, it's a mixture of ESV and going back into the Greek and all that fun stuff, so it may read a little different than your text, but the idea is, the, the hope is to help kind of flesh it out for us, to bring it out um, so we understand it a little more clearly. It says this in verse 3, know this first, the mockers will have a heyday in the last days. 
following their own desires and acting according to their peculiar passions. They will say, where is the coming he promised? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So again, Peter's trying to point out what we overlook and why. And he first off starts with this. He says this scoffing, making light of, mocking, disrespecting, showing contempt for the way of Jesus will be no uncommon thing, both inside the community of faith and outside of it. This scoffing in the last days, both inside and outside the community of faith, um, showing contempt for the way of Jesus will be no uncommon thing. It will, just be, it will be normal. It will be a part of the air you breathe. As he said in his first letter, the way of Jesus doesn't always sync with the rhythm of any culture, right? It doesn't always line up perfectly with the way of any culture at any time in history in any place. Still, this discontinuity between the ways of the world and the way that is Jesus will be especially mocked in this term, the last days. Now, we hear and read these words, the last days, and with our Western-educated, linear-trained ears, we hear end times, right? Like, if you're honest, like, like now end times comes up, this is the end, this is the apocalypse, this is, this is it, the moment where rec- all is going to be reconciled, like the God's going to come down and destroy, and all that kind of stuff, we hear that. Like, maybe it's Armageddon or whatever, like, but we all have these kind of memories, especially if you've been in the church for any amount of time, um, like you've heard some sort of spill on this. Um, these are why apocalyptic movies are great, like because we all love them or drawn to them because we want this kind of in conclusion, this last times, this end times. There's some sort of impending state that's coming. That's what we hear when we read the words, the last days. But last days is not a reference to the future, but it's actually the present. In both Hebrew and Greek, the term last days is not a picture of the future. It's an it's, it's a description of, it's a reference to a time of God acting in human history. Sometimes it's a, a future time, the days, but it, it wouldn't say the last days. It would just say the days in the future. But it, it's a phrase that, that references God acting in human history, specifically God's action in and for his people against the forces of evil. It's God acting in human history on behalf of his name, his people, what, he, what his desires are, and against the forces of evil. To bring both judgment, this kind of, this idea of overcoming and ending, of exposing what is evil and what, what leads to destruction of life, and salvation, restoration, bringing up to life, to the fullness of life, all that is meant to flourish. It has this dual kind of picture of this judgment and salvation, this time of God acting in history on behalf of his people against the forces of evil. And here, such action, especially in Jewish history, included the manifestation of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. This idea of the last days of the Messiah when he would come, when God would act in human history to judge, to expose, to declare everything that was against his will and his way is evil, to show it for what it is. That's what a judge does. He points out what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false. It would be judged and overcome. And at the same time, that which is true and good and beautiful would be allowed to flourish. Like this, is, this is what the Messiah would bring. This is what the end of, his, of, of Ezekiel is all about. This, the, the last four chapters of Ezekiel is all about this coming Messiah, this coming anointed one, this coming king prince who will rule over the earth as God's anointed to restore both judge and save the world and establish God's kingdom in earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And in in, to the people Peter's writing to, they assumed that this person was Jesus. The same person we assume, right? Like we hear Christ and Messiah and we think Jesus automatically, right? Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection, ascension were and are God's action in the world. God's rule in action. God's judging the world and saving the world. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Is God's plan taking action in our existence? That's why Jesus came preaching, proclaiming, demonstrating God's kingdom come now and coming more and more so. A declaration that leads to both repentance and salvation, joyous salvation. This is how Jesus began his ministry in Mark. He says this Jesus came saying, The time, the last days, the time, the judgment, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. 
The time is fulfilled. The last days are here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right on the doorsteps. You're right in it, right here and right now. So what do you do? You repent. Because why? Because everything will be exposed. Because everything will be exposed. Good and evil will be exposed. And you believe in the gospel. Now, literally, you believe the good news, right? This joyous thing. There's this repentance of, listen, all is going to be exposed. Oh, my goodness, all is going to be exposed. I'm going to be exposed. The evil in me is going to be exposed. The evil in the world is going to be exposed. But you also believe that the good news, that God has come into the world to not just judge, but to save. To not just destroy, but to bring restoration. And so the early Jesus movement believed that they were living in the last days since they were living in the kingdom inaugurated by the coming of Jesus. That's what the, the readers of Peter's letter would have understood. That's what they would have expected to hear because they thought they were in the last days. And listen, every generation since uh, the apostles and Jesus from Jesus' ascension, I thought they, that they were the last ones that were going to get to experience this kind of, this kind of, moment of God's both judgment and and restoration that someday like they would be the last ones and then it would all end and we'd get to the, the the perfect state. Every generation has thought that because every generation is is a part of this last days. Like we continue to live in this last days into the same eternal kingdom which Peter assumes that Jesus has made every effort to richly provide us entrance to. So What the scoffers scoff at is God's present activity. How God is presently taking action in the world on behalf of his people and creation to overcome evil, to both judge and to save, to both both expose and restore. They dismiss with contempt the way God is presently working in human history to judge and repair because conflicts with what they desire, their way of living with God and others. That's what Peter says. The reason they miss this is because it conflicts with what they want to be true. That, that they desire, um, they, they want um, a life that's less than what God wants for them. They want a life that's, that's different than what God has for them because they think they can figure that out on their own, right? There's nothing new. We've talked about this over and over again in Peter's letter. He's not giving us any new information from Genesis 3, Right? We're still after the same thing. We still fall into the same cyclical traps, right? He said the conflict arises because they are operating under the assumption that the way God takes action to judge and to save, to bring about what he desires, is the same way that the world goes about getting what they desire. The same way God goes about getting what he wants is the way they would go about getting what they want, right? And how do we go about getting what we want? We have power. We pursue power to get it. We have grit. And so we, we wrestle for it, fight for it, earn it, hold on until it's ours. We have wealth, so we buy it. We have influence, so we move others and use others to get and give us what we desire. We have strength to overcome what it might, might keep us from our desires. We have creative abilities, cutting-edge technology to allow us to, to control the world around us so that we can, might make the most of it. That's how we overcome the world, right? That's how we overcome evil. That's how we get for what, what we hope for, through power and strength and grit and wealth and influence and creativity and technology and, and controlling the world that we have. I mean, isn't that what kind of drives us in the, our pursuits of things that we desire? Doesn't it kind of control us sometimes in the way we pursue God and life with God? But there's something about Jesus that puts all these assumptions to question, right? He makes us question all these things. Jesus does. Jesus, our master, the one that we are apprenticed to and follow, the one who freed us from our bondage, who owns us and claims us and, and gives us freedom and dignifies us as our savior. His rule and reign throws things off kilter, throws off how we think about God and others in the world. The way Jesus came into the world, what he did while he was in the world and what he continues to do for the world challenges our assumption of how the world actually works. 
of how God is actually working in the world. If we let it, if we're willing to submit to it. Listen to this world-altering statement of Jesus in John chapter 12. A statement that comes from Jesus on his way to his hour, to this, this inaugural action that will bring the last days in judgment. That's what the term hour means in scripture. This hour, this time when, when this actual in, in the moment working of God for this action of bringing about the, God's action in the world, the last days. For this hour, the time of his death and God's action against evil. Jesus knows where he was going and Jesus prayed aloud these words. My soul, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Now I know the hours come. I'm moving to this place of where God's going to be acting in the world and my soul is overwhelmed. And should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Should I say, Father, save me from this time of, of judgment and salvation? Should I save me from this time of your intended plans and purposes? How can I? For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Instead, I pray, Father, glorify me. Glorify your name. Sorry, Father, glorify your name. I want what you want. I come to this hour and it's troubling, right? It's troubling to have all the assumptions of the world conflicted, right? It's troubling. And my soul is troubled. And yet this is the very thing for which I've been created for. So glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. How awesome would that be, just by the way, to pray and to hear God's response right away? Wouldn't that something we all long for? Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. What? I have glorified my name. I have glorified. I have made clear, made pure, made beautiful, made splendorous my plans and desires and hearts. And I will do so again. Jesus answered. The voice has come for your sake, not mine. How cool is that? Jesus didn't need to hear the Father say that out loud. He knew it. He still prayed with a, his heart was still, still aching within him and twisted within him, right? Like it was still, um, his soul was still troubled within him, even though he knew what the Father longed for. But he says, this isn't for me that you hear these things, but for you. And then he says this profound statement. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. At the cross of Christ, judgment. The world is judged. Everything is exposed. Evil is exposed for what, it, what evil is. Everything is weighed by the cross of Christ. Everything is renewed through the cross of Christ. The enemy is put under, and at his ascension, at his rising again, both the ascension, the idea here is both his physical resurrection, but in his ruling ascension, where he sits now on the throne, as Peter describes him in 1 Peter chapter 1, 16, right? That he will draw all men into this, this exposing of what is evil, overcoming of what is evil, supplanting of what is evil, and bringing out, drawing out what is good. That's what the cross of Christ does. How amazing is that? That this is the way that God judges the world, through the cross. The way God is acting in the present, the last days, to both judge and to save, to both overcome evil and restore his cherished creation, is through the death and resurrection of his son. Through people living the resurrection of Jesus with him. For letting his death become our death and his life become our life. And while we might say yes and amen to this, let us be honest that if the way God is working is through selfless sacrifice, through exposing that the pursuit of our desires through the common means in our world is only keeping us trapped and entangled in the life-sucking cycles of existence and faith, if going about getting the life we want even the life in Jesus we want by the way that which the world says to get a life that you want is actually keeping you in a self-sucking cycle, life-sucking cycle of existence and faith. 
If this is what the way of Jesus shows us, that restoration comes through self-giving love and compassion, even for our enemies, not in opposition to them, but for them, then wouldn't we agree, at least to some degree, that whether we lean towards a pious life or a socially savvy life, that the cross is both foolishness and a stumbling block? Don't we feel that at times? That the cross is silly. It doesn't work. This is not how life works. Dying to self, serving, submitting. This is not the way to get life in the life that I want. This is not the way to get the life that God wants for me. It doesn't work that way. I stumble over it. Aren't we at times offended by it? Not its grotesqueness, but its conviction. I know I am. I'm rarely am I, am, if I'm honest, am I, if I, um, am I offended by the, by the cross because of the, the violence that it portrays, because of the evil that it, that it is the manifestation of? Like more often I'm, I'm offended because it challenges the way I think, the way I see the world, the way I know God and the way I know myself. I think that's why Paul calls the cross folly a trip up in one of his letters to people very similar to, um, to the people that Peter's writing to, maybe even the same people. He says this in first Corinthians for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's folly to those who are being exposed to or receiving the judgment, right? But, but it's joy. It's restoration to those who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the, the law, the, uh, um, the expert in, uh, in the scriptures? Where is the debater of this age, the expert in how life works? How has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's no wonder that the scoffers are making light of the way of God's action in human history throughout um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, where they run counter to our wisdom, right? No wonder they make fun of it. They make light of it. They think it can't work, that it's silly, because it runs counterintuitive to the way we naturally interact in the world. That's why we have to be reminded and remember, why we have to come back to it and come back to it over and over again, why every time we gather together, we break the bread and pour the juice. The cross proves that the way the world works from the beginning of creation is not the way the world actually works. The way the world works, the way the world tells us it works, is not the way the world actually works. That's what the cross shows. That the world we live in does not spin round and round by economics and power brokers, by the strong and the wealthy, the influencer, the like, the religious, the ones who got it all figured out, but rather by God's just this in mercy, his loving and effective affection. That's what the cross says, keeps the world spinning. That's what Psalm 33 was all about. The Deidre and Stephanie read for us. The world is not merely preserved. Its foundation is God's action in God's love. His plan to overcome evil and restore life through the means that seem counterintuitive. Through a way of life that looks like it is going backwards, but proves to be something totally and utterly new. That the business of God is not the destruction of his enemies. Hear that. That the business of God is not the destruction of his enemies, but exposing what is our enemy and overcoming not by might or force or vengeance, but through covenant, faithful love, self-giving, self-sacrificing, other-oriented love. This is what keeps the world turning. And that's what we both miss when we look at the past, 
And what we're to remember as we conclude this morning, at least in verses five through six, let's keep reading. Listen, those who tend to stumble over the cross, those who tend to, um, um, to think it's silly and foolish, this way of Jesus, that it doesn't really work. They, they do so because they, they kind of don't want it to, to work that way. They kind of want the world to work the way the world says it works. If I have power, influence, wealth, if I live up to whatever measures and standards I create to be success, then, then I get what I want, right? That's the way we want the world to work because we're in control of the world, right? That's the way we want it to work. They reduce everything to the way they feel. To, to if, 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 if I can get what I want, I'll feel the way I want to. If I can look at the world and see um, how the world works and feel like I've got an understanding on it, then, then that's the way the world really works and I'm in a good spot. They reduce it all to their feelings. So they overlook the fact that this, that by God's words, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. That's creation. That's Genesis 1, right? The heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water through the word of God. And through water by the word of God, then by means of the water and the word, the world that then existed was deluged and perished in a miserable end. That's the flood. This is Genesis 1 through 9. That's what Paul or Peter's saying right here, right? It's Genesis 1 through 9. God created with his word out of water. And with water, he covered the earth. He destroyed all that was evil and led it to a miserable end, the same kind of term of, of what miserableness that we'll fall into if we keep in the traps of, of following fools. The story of creation and flood is the story of the whole world, of the beginning of creation, the story in which God created everything good, yet his creatures coveted more, and in their covetedness, they destroyed one another. And so God sets to start over, to recreate to act in history for the good of creation and the overcoming of evil. This is a common story in mythology, right? We talked about this several weeks ago, so I won't go into detail. You can go back and listen about how often and why Peter uses, Paul uses the, Peter uses the words that he uses. So many Ps. Um, Peter uses the words that he uses and the way he does them. It's because he's, he's linking them back to Greek mythology, to the, his hearers would know and recognize in the stories of their culture, the stories that he's telling and how, how they're similar but different, right? And so, so this whole idea of, of a God or God's like destroying the world to recreate because the world's off, that's really common in mythology. Like that's a really repeated story in mythology, right? And so, but unlike the other myths, God's actions reveal the, act, the true nature of the world and demonstrate the nature of God's nature in the world. So real quickly, real, real, real quickly, let's read how this story of the flood ends, just as a reminder. Because most of us think it just ends in the rainbow, right? Like, it's great and it's good. But there's a part that happens before the rainbow that's really, really important, really, really important to the way we understand. Because Peter, again, he's reminded us, don't forget these things, right? Don't forget this. And what is this? In, verse, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 says this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Floods, floods receded. He's, he's, the ark's landed, all the animals, two by two, become marching out and all that fun stuff, right? The, so Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. It pleased, his worship pleased the Lord. His response to the Lord was pleasing. And the Lord said in his heart, kind of like um, um, uh, Abel's response to the Lord. Again, there's kind of an imagery back into the, to the first creation story after the fall. And then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. I will never again dishonor the ground because of men. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's, he's born into this desire for corruption and covetousness, right? His intention from early on, very quickly in human life, we want our own way in opposition to everybody else around us, including those, our parents, right? Like we've, we've all been there. We've all been teenagers right? Like we know this is how we, this is what we, how we act, right? So just kind of laugh at that. Like men are perpetually teenagers. <laughs> We're perpetually teenagers. Um, anyway, so I'm not going fast enough here. It says, neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Neither will I strike down every living creature that I've ever done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease.
And then uh, he says this, but um, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you green plants, I'll give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning for your lifeblood for you to continue for. There will be a reckoning from every beast I required. And from every man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of men. And this is the reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of men, by men shall his blood be shed. For God made men in his own image. In other words, I am establishing a way forward that life will be given through life given. If life is taken, there will be repayment for that with life. Right? What does that remind us of? Like, what life was given so that we might have life? What life was taken so that we might have life paid for, restored, paid in full, right? In verse 7, and you... Be faithful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. It's a re- recreate. It's the same words in Genesis one twenty six. Be faithful and multiply. It's recreation, right? Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth, and with, with you as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and everything, every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, here's our rainbow, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. That says, I'm not going to do this again. Every time it rains, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. I'm not bringing my judgment. I'm staying it. I'm making a covenant with you to not destroy, to give life through the, through the taking of life, through, the, through the, the payment of life. To give life through life, life received. I'm making this covenant for you, for, through you. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Not some, not a few, not part, but all. Right? This is what God has done. From Genesis 9.18 on. God is going about moving creation forward, not in this cycle of create, destroy, recreate, create, destroy, recreate, create, destroy, recreate, but moving creation forward through, through the raising up of a person. What do we have right after the story? The story of Babel and then Abraham. God is not, he's setting to start over, but not start over to recreate through destruction but to act in history for the good of his creation and the overcoming of evil through choosing a person from which a people will be raised up and blessed to be a blessing. That's the story that we're a part of. This is how God has been working from the foundation of the earth, from the beginning of the world. Unlike those who think, well, this is the way the world works. Those who have power, those who have influence, those who have wealth, those who have grit, those who are able to persevere on their own, to get through, to control, they're the ones who move the world forward, even positively so. Says, no, no, the world moves forward because God is working underneath everything to raise up a person, to raise up a people, to be a blessing to the world, to restore not through destruction, but through a life given, so that life might be received. This is what Peter says the word that created and flooded has promised to do. In verse 7, it says, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are put in the treasuries for fire. Now, we get a little nervous at that, right? Let's be honest. This is the, uh, the apocalypse, the Armageddon coming around, right? But fire, in its, in its actual understanding of fire, like one, um, one uh, lexicon actually describes this word uh, in the Greek this way as um, um, the flame that purifies and transforms. Like there's this idea of fire isn't just destruction, right? Fire in scripture isn't used as a purely destructive thing. It, it's a it's a thing again that that purifies. But if you put something fine like a like a piece of of ore uh, in fire, 
the pure gold or silver will rise to the top of the fire while the ore is melted away, right? Like while the, the, the dross and all the other things that are, that are unpure uh, will be pulled out of it. So that what is left, what is separated out, will be that which is good and beautiful and, and, and wealthy and, and valuable and all that, right? That's the idea of fire in our scriptures. But again, it has this dual meaning, right? Like, yes, it pulls apart, it judges, it exposes what's good, true, stable, but also destroys that which is not. It's a fire that purifies and transforms. That the world is being held up and treasured by God, treasured by God. That's the idea of treasuries there. Stored up is literally means treasuries. It put into his treasury which is a different way of thinking about how God is like operating in the world, right? They're like everything that happens in the world is going into his treasury, something that he guards and protects that is his. They can't just be take, come in and stolen and taken, but it's also something that he values, right? Like, that they, like there's something about even the way that things happen in the world that God values. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And they're being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Those who have no respect for God, his artistry or his rule. The flood destroyed everything. Fire pulls out and destroys only that which has no respect for God, no need for his love. That's what it does. It pulls out that which does not have any respect for God, has no need for God, no need for his love. What God is up to now is keeping the world spinning on his love. As the psalmist said, he loves it when everything fits. When his world is plumb line true. And then listen to this word. Earth is drenched in God's love. His affectionate satisfaction. He loves it when everything moves in his plan of justice and mercy. The earth is drenched, covered in his love. Do we think of the world that way? Do we think that this is the way that the world moves forward? Drenched in the love of the Lord, a love that is justice and mercy. He is treasuring his creation, rescuing and keeping, guarding and keeping under guard. His plan is unchanging. The psalmist continues, says, God takes the wind out of Babel pretense, the pride of, of not needing him, of trying to be him, of telling him what we desire. And he shoots down the world's power schemes, how the world thinks it works and moves forward. God's plan for the world stands up, though, stands fast, keeps going. The plans of his heart are made to last. Not just his general plans, the plans of his heart, what he longs for, desires, and loves. There is an end. Our scriptures are clear on that. We're not saying that, that the last days are it. There is a moment when all this will be exposed fully and completely. And all we'll know after the exposure is what's true, good, and beautiful. A time when God will act finally to end what is evil and establish good forever, but not at the cost of all created things. Rather, through the slow, steady, patient, and effective exposing and transforming of all things. That's what Peter says, and this will end with this in these final reminders in verse 8. I was falling apart. In verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, But do not overlook. Okay, so listen, you've, all, you've overlooked the past of how God's worked in the past. That the world is drenched in his affectionate love, drenched in his justice and mercy. That this is the world that you live in. This is the world you live in. That God's plans are never put off. That he exposes Babel's pretense and the world's power schemes for what they are. That this is what he does. He's what he's doing most fully in Jesus. You've overlooked how he's worked in the past. And in so doing, here's what you miss out in the future. So don't forget this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. In other words, God's time works differently than ours, right? You, listen, you think God moves slowly. That's what he's going to say in the next verse, right? In verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises of some count slowness. Listen, if we're honest, some of the reason we question this and the, some of the reason we think that the, the, the cross is folly and silliness and a stumbling block is because it doesn't seem to work in time. It doesn't seem to work by the way we view the world. In our little time of the world, it doesn't seem like this is actually how God's changing things. But Peter says, but listen, God doesn't work in the same time constraints that you do. God doesn't work. Listen, God is, God's, God, you cannot pair, pull down God into working in some sort of specific 
cyclical restraints, right? A day is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. He's not bound by what binds us. And so I get it. He's not slow as some would count slowness. You count it slow a delay. But rather this, look at the end of verse 9. But is patient towards you on your behalf. Patient towards you on your account. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God slow? Because of mercy and grace. Why does God allow us to continue to live in a time and place in which evil is kept at bay to a degree? Right? It's not allowed to rule the world and determine the world's future. It's being kept under judgment. That's what chapter 2 was about, right? The first part of chapter 2. And at the same time, like in the midst of that experience, to some extent, the fullness of his kingdom, like that Peter expects of us, that we live in this kind of paradoxical reality of like in the midst of chaos, there's peace. Why does God allow that to continue to be the reality that we live in? Because he's patient. Because he's merciful. Because he desires all to reach repentance. He doesn't want to destroy. He doesn't want to destroy. He, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he, de- he pours out his reign on the sinners and the saints, the Jews and the Gentiles, those inside and outside. And he doesn't just love those who love him. He actually loves his enemies. He prays for his enemies. He longs for his enemies to be who they really are, his created beings, his creatures. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. At some point, there will be an end to it, right? At some point, the thing that, um, the, the, the time will be up. The day of the Lord will, will come. He'll return in his fullness And then the heavens will pass away with the roar. And the elements, reads heavenly bodies here, but this is the the Greek idea of both the celestial um, bodies, like sun and moon, um, planets, as well as the divine celestials, so which are also named like Mars, Venus. I mean, they're named after gods, right? Like there's a reason for that. Um, And so so like these things, these things which you think control the movement of the earth, the cycle of the earth, how the earth moves forward and keeps spinning, these things which you visually see and have given some sort of divine meaning to how the world moves and works, and in some ways because of spiritual realities, keep the world moving in in some sort of way. They will be, the word there in your translation probably says burned up, but it literally is laid bare, exposed, exposed. They will be exposed, the same kind of refining Exposure, right? That they'll be exposed and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The works still done, the way that we live, the way the world actually works, what God's work has actually been on earth will be made clear. Listen, the writer of, the writer of Hebrews um, He understands that kind of this idea is scary to be when we think about God and the way God um, judges. He understands that judgment is a little scary. Um, And in fact, like we're not the only ones to be intimidated by this a little bit, right? Um, If if we're honest, like it's been really, hopefully like it's been a little bit of an encouragement to kind of hear that maybe the world works differently than we think it does because of the cross. But if we're honest at times, because of that, like we get a little bit nervous when it comes to interacting with God on these things. And there's a story in Exodus where the people of God who are freed out of slavery, right, are being led through um, um, across the, the waters, seeing their enemies overcome and, and, uh, and drowned. Um, and in the presence of God, don't want to go into the presence of God. They would rather send Moses to the presence of God for them. Send him up the mountain. They want to stay at the bottom of the mountain. The writer of Hebrews tells us, like, we don't need to be like that. Like, we don't, we don't need to fear coming into the presence of God, the presence of God, God's action in the world, an action that does expose. It absolutely exposes us, exposes the evil within us and the evil around the world, but it also restores and saves us. And so the writer of Hebrews, talking about that, says this. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. 
Talking about Jesus, right? Don't, don't refuse Jesus who's calling you into the presence of the Lord. His life given for your life. Into a life that isn't trapped by this. Into a world that doesn't forget how God's acted and doesn't see God in this moment today continuously working out for the salvation through judging and saving that is the cross. Don't refuse that. At that time, his voice shook the earth. And now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. At that moment in Exodus, their freedom, and God's voice shook the mountain, and they were scared. And at some point, Jesus' voice will shake all of the earth. In Revelation, the, the, the image of Jesus coming back on a white horse, which is kind of fun because he's all tatted up on his leg, um, and everybody loves, right? And we get this image of, like, oh, there's this great battle. But literally, all Jesus does is speak. He says, it's done. And then it's done. Like he doesn't fight. He doesn't will. He doesn't go and just get into some like epic battle, like from some sort of Marvel comic hero. He just says a word. And it's done. It's over. It's exposed. It says that Jesus will come and once more he will shake the earth, but also the heavens. And the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shakable. The removal of things that aren't steady. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. That Jesus, when he speaks to us the gospel, the good news of how God works, it shakes us, but only to remove those things that are shakable and leave those things that are everlasting. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God judges and saves. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, we depend on you. Our souls wait for you. You are everything we need, our helper and defender. You have been so from the very foundations of the earth. Forgive us where we have failed to see that and failing to see how you have acted in history and most clearly in Jesus. Father, forgive us where we fail to see you acting today. In our lives, in our neighbors' lives, in our enemies' lives, in our world. Once more, our hearts brim with joy since we've taken for ourselves your holy name. For we have received from Jesus his righteousness, all that we need for life and godliness. To escape the cycles of corruption in our world. Love us, Father. You're all we've got. That's what we're depending on.